0: And welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G.
1: Hey there, Kev. Ready to celebrate Big Finish's history?
0: I'm very ready with the first part of two parts of Big Finish's history and the first part of two parts that'll culminate in our 100th episode.
1: Fantastic! So, this week, that means we are covering The Legacy of Time. Now, as you're probably aware, The Legacy of Time exists to celebrate 20 years of Big Finish. That is a lot of Doctor Who to be produced. And that means that their weight of expectations on The Legacy of Time is going to be pretty heavy. Now, we've already covered The Light at the end, which was Big Finish's first attempt at a really big celebration story. So, let's see how they do with The Legacy of Time. Kev, do you want to give us a quick summary of what we're going to be covering this week?
0: Sure. We are covering the first three stories on the box set. Lies in Ruins, The Split Infinitive, and The Sacrifice of Joe Grant*. Lies in Ruins is an eighth Doctor story also featuring River Song and Bernice Summerfield, where River and Benny meet on an archaeological dig uh, and the Doctor soon arrives and realizes they're in the ruins of Gallifrey. The Doctor also has his companion Rhea with him. And something's not quite up with Rhea, as I believe everyone clocks immediately, but this isn't revealed until later that she is a robotic companion, and also the ruins of Gallifrey are actually illusory and something designed to project the wants and ideals of the user because it is a destroyed TARDIS. Unfortunately, it isn't found out until after alien scavengers start ravaging the planet, forcing the Doctor to almost take extreme measures to stop them. Luckily, River and Bernice are able to talk him down and... Uh, They part amicably. I guess it just sort of ends there after that. (laughs) And the reveal that Rhea is a robotic companion, which and the Doctor resolves himself to take a more active hand in the Time War. The split infinitive involves the Seventh Doctor and Ace meeting up with countermeasures in both the 60s and the 70s as the two timelines begin to collide thanks to the efforts of time-traveling rocket men playing with technology they do not understand. Uh, as Ace helps out kind of in the 60s, it helps the ones in the 70s remember their adventures with Ace to help out the Doctor as time progresses in a fifth dimensional way that makes sense in the story until you don't think about it too hard. And The Sacrifice of Joe Grant has an older Joe meet up with the unit of the present day, led by Kate Stewart and Osgood, uh, tumbling back into the past where the third Doctor is active with unit in the 70s. The older Joe and younger Doctor catch up and then soon realize that the only way this time anomaly can be uh, fixed is by Joe sacrificing herself to the Vortex in order to close the rifts. Thankfully, the Doctor has a lot of time to figure out how to get her out, and he is able to save her at the last second. And that is pretty much what we're working with.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much. Now, I think the first thing that we have to be upfront about here is that Neither of us have listened to the last three episodes, so we don't know how this resolves as we're recording this. So we're really going in blind. We're covering three episodes that we don't actually know the conclusion to. Well, let's kick off at least with Life in Ruins, which is by James Goss. Um, how did you find this, and how do you think River and Benny worked together?
0: I am a big fan of the idea of River and Benny meeting. I am a big fan of the idea of River being retconning to be Benny's student. And uh, a lot of that stuff, I think with those two characters specifically, I think works really well. I think their bickering is like very fun and lighthearted. I think Kingston and Bowerman are, they're two of the most professional actors in the Big Finish stable, and they really knock it out of the park. And I think they work with McGann really well. Also, Uh, I think a little bit of a spanners in the works with this temporary companion though. And there's a lot of problems with the character of Rhea that, I think bring what is otherwise a kind of great story down to merely good.
1: Yeah, i go along with that. I think Rhea's a really big problem in this story. I I, I have to say, obviously, up front, I kind of... It's almost very easy to forget just how great Lisa Bowerman is when you're not actually listening to her. And I know, like, Benny is always, like, an ancillary character. I know she's got her own range. I know that's how Big Finish started. And so, of course, it's completely appropriate that she turns up here. But it's just, she's such a delight to listen to. And I love the way that her and River are sort of scripted in the same way that like, the second doctor and the third doctor are scripted in the three doctors. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like these two characters who are sort of playing off against each other and they're so familiar that they can't, and so similar that they can't help but have that sort of friction between them, especially that thing when, like, right at the beginning, you know, River opens the tomb and and sort of, you know, Benny's there with cocktails. Well, that's normally the role that River would have. So, of course, she's immediately, you know, her, her nose is out of joint because of that. That's great, right? That's really good scripting, and there's so much sort of fun to be had with those two characters. But Rhea just is such a, a spanner in the kind of work, so every time we come back to her, she just feels insufferable. And I don't think the revelation that she's actually artificial. Helps to get away from her kind of insufferability. Like we've seen Charlie characterized that kind of way before. That kind of a very kind of over-enthusiastic, jolly hockey sticks kind of like, oh yes, Doctor, and we can do this, and we can have great adventures, and blah 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 blah. And like maybe it's unfortunate because we we do cover stories out of sequence, so we we cover Charlie, you know, in contention with a story like this, with with a couple of weeks between them rather than a few years, say that might make that character a little bit more bearable, but it's just something about it that just, it it doesn't ring true as a character and it doesn't ring true as a plot device either. And as such, it just really annoyed me.
0: I think the big problem with Rhea is she's written to be so uh, silly and so over the top obnoxious <laughs> I'm trying to find nicer words to say, but they're not coming to me. (laughs) Uh, That's fair. But yeah, it tips her hand too early that something is up with her. And she's like a more egregious version of Brooke from the Diary of River Song Volume 3, I think we just covered. I think it's playing a very similar way of getting River and Benny, in this case as well, jealous of younger companions and taking attention away from her doctor. And I think that's definitely what James Goss is going for here with the character of Rhea is to play up on that side of the character. And I mean, granted a few years have passed, real time since Riversong volume three, less so for us, but I still think it's a little derivative no matter how much time has passed to sort of hit that well again. And I also think uh, the reveal of Rhea comes way too late because I spent the whole story knowing, okay, something's up with this character like Brooke. It's too much of a dead on parody of a Charlie type of a, young companion showing up, the older companion's sort of narrative going on here. It's too on the nose. There is something up with this character, and it's only when the reveal comes very late, it's not shocking. It's just explanatory. I think good things are done with that reveal. I think the character is sufficiently tragic, but a lot of the sting of that tragedy is taken out by the fact that she is so obnoxious up until that point.
1: Oh, no, absolutely. I completely agree. And I think part of the issue that exists here is that because this play is only an hour long, it doesn't have the scope within it to have the kind of emotional heft that would help explain why the Eighth Doctor might do this. So, like, we get a little bit of backstory about how he's been traumatized by the Time War and how he wants to have a companion that's just somebody who can, like, hang around with him and, 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 like, be his perfect companion. And that's all fine in an expository sense, but this particular play just doesn't have the time to be able to deliver the kind of emotional cadence that we need from the eighth doctor to explain why he would take such a kind of radical step as to like invent his own companion. Cause that's, that's like a real kind of psychosis. That's a, that's a deeply disturbing and disturbed thing to do, but there's no way that you can cover that in an hour. Now you might, possibly even legitimately argue that if you have been following the time war, then maybe that series of events does enough kind of emotional lifting to be able to justify this possibility. That may well be true, but I don't think that's a good enough excuse in this case because... If you have a release like this, like this is the big anniversary release. This is pop your poppers, light your fireworks, boom, boom, boom. Twenty years in the business, da 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 da. And this is definitely going to sell to people, and is definitely being marketed at people who aren't going to have followed every single episode of the time, or who aren't going to be super over invested in kind of like the, you know, the emotional distress that the Eighth Doctor has gone through in order to reach this point. And because of that, because that gap exists within this story. It can't ever make I think Rhea work as a character because there just yeah there just isn't space for that kind of emotional development within an hour.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. You can't do like you can't rely on people having listened to the Time War box sets. And what's also weird is the the Eighth Doctor has a companion in the Time War box sets. Uh, I don't I haven't listened to them either. I don't know much about this character Bliss, but I don't. And maybe there is some reason why she can't show up in this story, but it does feel very strange to have to go through all this convolution to give the Eighth Doctor a companion for this and a quote-unquote new companion and not do much with it when we are covering that sort of same era. You have that, what I assume is the same theme tune from those box sets and everything. And then, but just only have a sort of token mention. It is... I mean, it's very strange. And I almost think having this another fully formed character would be more interesting than having this very hap- slapdash written only here for an hour character that's also competing for attention with uh, Riversong, Benny, and this other story. It is it is such a very strange decision. And like yeah, it's, it's really deep psychosis. And I think I get it. I think on paper, it is a kind of great story to have this idea of the doctor building companion that, who exists to tell him he's doing the right thing, even if he's not. I think that sort of irony is interesting, and in that what makes River and Benny actually good companions is they're willing to stand up to him where Rhea would never. I don't think that's ever highlighted or done much with thematically to really hammer the point home, and it makes Rhea just seem really superfluous.
1: I think I think you're right. I think superfluous is exactly the word for her. I Alexandra Riley does as well as she possibly can with the role, but there's just no real way of having that role convince and and that's always going to be kind of undermining. I think the thing with a lot of these um, stories in the box set, like they all have kind of like cute little sort of premises. So like the idea that um, River and Benny who a lot of people have said like River is basically Benny but like in the modern series rather than just in books or audios. It's a cute idea to have old unit and new unit meet in a story where we actually get to have like the third Doctor again. And next week we'll be covering um, the fifth Doctor and Jenny meeting together which is a cute idea again because you know it's father and daughter acting as father and daughter. Those are all cute ideas and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're going to have that be the focus of your episode, if you're going to have Benny and River meeting in a way that, you know, let's be honest, I mean, never in a million years should that ever happen. So it's incredibly awesome that it does happen. But if that's going to be like the focus of your episode, let that be the focus of your episode. Don't let it get sort of, distracted into this kind of side thing with a companion that we don't know about and a like yeah, it like just like there's gonna be a really obvious mystery going on there. And, you know, also it's the first episode in the box set, so you're gonna have kind of like, it's not even a lot of exposition, but you're going to have a lot of setup going on here. So we have a TARDIS which is sort of dying and is collapsing through time, and we have the idea that, oh, first it's the Matrix, then it's kind of not the Matrix, and all there's, there's a lot of kind of plot points which are moving around here as well. Rhea can't help but get in the way of that, and it's, you know, like, it's the Eighth Doctor, and what's more, it's the Eighth Doctor during the Time War. There's no necessity to have him traveling with a companion. And I don't think that the contrast between a companion that does everything or tells him that everything he does is right against two companions who don't fall into that sort of pattern. I don't think that's well enough developed to sort of justify her presence within the script. And that can't help but feel frustrating. There are more interesting things we could be spending time on here.
0: Yeah. I and mean, like I said, more interesting things. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. And if I appreciate what James Gosselin for thematically, like I outlined earlier, I, like, there's so much more interesting things to do in the story. Not only just the River Song and Benny stuff, but also the Doctor's arc in this episode, I find really good. Like, it's an arc that's sort of familiar pushing the Doctor to a line and seeing if he'll cross it. But I think McGann plays it so well. And I think it's one of the most believable times the Doctor's been pushed to a line like that. And especially in the context of the Time War and everything. I really enjoy McGann and Kingston and Bowerman's... The performance has gotten out of them with this sort of arc of, will the Doctor go so far as to kill these scavengers?
1: Oh, absolutely. And we know that Paul McGann and... um alex kingston have a great rapport together because they had that first story in the first river box set where they absolutely sparked off each other they were fantastic together so we know that there's a strong kind of resonance going on there and it goes without saying of course benny and the eighth doctor are going to absolutely fly together so there's so much potential there and like the scavengers themselves i mean they don't I mean, they exist only really Mm -hmm. to kind of throw the Doctor's moral dilemma into sort of sharp relief. They don't really exist as anything more than that. But I don't necessarily think that's a weakness in this case of the story. I think the story is perfectly fine just using them as a way of sharpening the Doctor's moral conundrum. And you could easily, I think, have that moral conundrum played out with river taking one side and sort of benny taking the other and especially i think because river is much more pragmatic and kind of you know she's meant to be this you know we keep getting told she's meant to be a psychopath that's what she's been engineered for so it's very easy for her sort of to, to imagine her being somebody who would advocate for you know destroying the the, the scavengers and blowing them out of the sky benny's a bit more compassionate she's a bit more kind of worldly wise and she's got that kind of that edge to her that would allow uh, the character's compassion to come through so she would advocate for, you know, taking a a, a more tolerant approach or or, or a more understanding or less violent approach. You already have the dynamic that you need in order to have that moral conundrum play out. Wasting time with Rhea is just that. It's wasting time.
0: Yeah, it's very frustrating that we don't get a really full focus on those three characters because I think those three characters are so strong. And like you mentioned, the contrasts and comparisons between river and Bennett just make it stronger and more interesting as a story. So yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what to make of this because there's so many things I like in it, but it just has the one big sore point that would always distract me whenever it came up. And then it would get really good whenever Rio was out of the picture. And it's almost like almost <laughs> comically in a sense that in the scenes without her, it's, such a better story and yeah I I can't think of anything much more to say about it other than like I mean I agree the scavengers are good being as simple one dimensional as they are because the story already has so much going for it and I think it doesn't really need them it is very much a story of the doctor and these two former companions and how they sort of can find his morality again and I think that's great
1: Oh, no, I agree. And I, I do want to say that I think in terms of the just purely the, the sort of sci-fi-plotting side of things, I do think this works. I think the idea of the kind of the old dying TARDIS, that's quite a resonant image. The idea of, of Gallifrey being reconstructed sort of almost brick by brick, and indeed the revelation that it is Gallifrey at all, or at least the sort of TARDIS model of Gallifrey, that's handled well, that's a good reveal. I think a lot of the sort of mechanics are, are absolutely fine here. And I like... I think I'm probably sounding more negative about this than I actually was listening to it because listening to it, I did thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah. But I mostly enjoyed it listening to you know Lisa Barman and and Alex Kingston play off each other. That's the real draw here, and I think that's the strongest part of this this uh, first episode.
0: I, I completely agree. I mean, like I said, I think I really enjoy the story. And Rio's around, and Rio's around. I still kind of enjoy it, but it's just noticeable how much of a dip it takes. And it, uh, but yeah, I think overall it's still a pretty good start to the box set. And I think it sort of sets the tone for the kind of, uh, within the B minus the B plus range a lot of these stories sit in, which is, you know, still good.
1: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't want to give the impression that this was a bad start to the, the anthology because it's definitely not. It's just it's one of those ones that it's very easy to see where it could have been better. And I know, you know, like we always say, we're not here to review something that we think should have been the case. We're here to review what we actually have in front of us. What we actually have in front of us is pretty strong. A lot of that strength does come down to the performances. Um, I, I, again, I haven't really sort of talked about Sir sort of Paul McGann, but he knocks it out of the park here. You know, he's fantastic when he's giving a, a lot of that kind of his his regret towards the end, and especially that you know, I just wanted one thing, and you took it away from me, and that kind mm-hmm. of there's 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 a real sharpness to the way that McGann delivers that. It's not. It's not. Contempt for for, for uh, River and Benny, but there's a real hurt that lies behind that. There's something really special there. McGadd's delivery is amazing on that line, and he does that all the way through. He's just he's just really great. And like the idea that he's becoming genuinely dangerous, so we can see you know the growth of the War Doctor within him and all that kind of stuff. That's all very well handled. So yeah, I I don't want to give the impression that this is a bad start to the box set because it isn't.
0: Oh, for sure, and. I I think also, like, River and Vinny, like, we've talked about how well-characterized there are, but speaking of good line readings, I just love the little aside. Uh, Rhea asks them why they're running away from the collapsing ruins, and they she asks, what kind of archaeologists are you, are you? And they both simultaneously reply alive ones. It really, I think James <laughs> Goss really understands what kind of type of humor works with those characters, and in addition to what sort of dramatically works with those characters. He really gets them, and, I mean, that's what you need is someone who gets those two characters very well, I know both have had a lot of writers over the course of the years they've been used in Doctor Who. But it is just nice that people beyond Paul Cornell and Stephen Moffat can write these two well. Oh,
1: I completely agree. That's absolutely an important thing to acknowledge. And yeah, both of these characters really do come alive when they're when they're written here. And like if I have any kind of regret of uh, you know this box set is that I'm assuming again three episodes listened to, three episodes to go. But, uh, you know, it's a shame that we're not going to revisit the sparing. I hope maybe at some point in the future it will be one that Big Finish return to because Alex Kingston and, and uh, Lisa Berman are just so great together. And I would really enjoy spending time with these two characters just sort of knocking about together again.
0: Well, if they're intent on putting out two River Box sets a year, we have to get to there eventually. <laughs> I imagine... <laughs> yeah, that's true. Every... Hopefully... I don't, know, I don't know if I should say hopefully they keep putting out two box sets a year, but hopefully at least we get <laughs> every combination we heart's desire before they run out of steam. That
1: seems fair. Well, I think we can probably leave it for Life and Ruins there. Shall we move on to Split Infinitive?
0: Sure. Uh, Split Infinitive. Uh, I guess I should also talk something up front. I have not listened to any Countermeasures box sets and barely remembered these characters from Remembrance of the Daleks, but uh, they're nice. They're charming. It's It's a fine story, and... <laughs> It's, it's sort of <laughs> like the opposite of Life in Ruins, where Life in I'm sorry, Lies in Ruins, where Eliza in Ruins had a lot of great things I loved, and there's one very obvious thing wrong with it. Uh, Split Infinitive has nothing particularly wrong with it, and it's just a lot of things I just sort of blandly enjoy.
1: Okay, that's fair enough. I think this is probably, of the three episodes that we're covering this week, the one that I favor the least. Now, The Rocket Man are part of that. I really, as I'm long on record in saying, dislike the Rocket Men. They're rubbish and they're a bad idea, poorly handled. Now, putting that prejudice to one side, I think part of the problem here is that it's just a bit... It's, it's okay... But it's there's not really an awful lot to get all that excited about here. I think I've listened to three quarters of one episode of Countermeasures. And that's not really the fault of Countermeasures. I just, I think at the time, it was a few years ago now, but I think at the time I just wasn't really in the mood for it or my head just wasn't in the right space for it. So I didn't, it didn't really click with me all that much i i don't think there's anything wrong with it i like the idea that the countermeasures team are kind of unit before unit okay that's fine the idea that they're sort of you know a little bit kind of Avengersy, a little bit kind of uh you know that kind of whole 1960s spy genre that's all fine you know there's a touch of quitter mass in there because of course there is um it's it's all okay but um There's something a bit flat about it. It just there's something about it. It feels a little two dimensional. I think when it when it ought to feel three dimensional.
0: I think the thing with countermeasures is, I like said, they're essentially unit but more formal and more quippy. I guess like I said, it's (laughs) sort of like yeah, unit but more Avengers inspired. And I think that's all there is to it, though. I and maybe if I had spent time with these characters, it would be more endearing. But also, like you said, there's so many of these uh, stories have like a hook to them whether it's a River and Benny meeting or the Fifth Doctor meeting, Jenny, this uh, these are characters the Seventh Doctor and Ace have met before, not only on TV, but also at least once in audio from my research in one of the main range stories. So it's not exactly innovative. And the only thing innovative about it is a very uh, confusing, but also simple time plot where you have Ace in the past going concurrent with the Doctor in... Uh, I was about to say the present, but it's the 70s. Ace in the 60s with the Doctor in the 70s. Uh, Ace in the past and the Doctor later, but earlier. And trying to sort of build uh, those two dual narratives and constantly reinforcing, ah, but someone could die in the past. I mean, but that doesn't ever feel like it rings true as far as dramatic tension. I think that's what's really lacking is a lot of dramatic tension.
1: No, I think that's an absolutely fair sort of criticism to make. And... I think part of the reason that there is a lack of dramatic tension is, I think, very unusually, that this is not a well-produced story. I think a lot of the production renders this very kind of flat. I know, generally speaking, we don't talk about production, and it's because we just sort of take it for granted that there's going to be, like, competency behind the mixing desk and occasionally we'll mention something when it's really outstanding or occasionally we'll mention something when it's really appalling but 95 percent of the time it's it's fine big finish are really good like whatever criticisms one might make of a particular story or writer or actor or whatever it is big finish almost always get the production right. They're really good at being able to do kind of soundscapes and, you know, like this is 20 years. I should very much hope that they are able to do it well at this point. But there's something about the production of Split Infinitive that just doesn't manage to work. And I don't know if it's a legacy from Countermeasures because I haven't listened to enough of that to be able to tell. But this it's very flat. And you're right, there's a lack of drama. And I think a lot of that comes from the production like lines are delivered and they're either slightly the pauses between the lines aren't quite right or they could have done with another take or maybe they're slightly too quick and, and people are talking over each other but there's something about the way that the production works I think it's particularly the countermeasures team funnily enough I think um Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred are, are perfectly fine here um, but it just it undercuts a lot of the drama and there's the way that it's edited means that there's no pacing to it. So like the scenes of everybody sitting around the office looking at slides going, okay, so this is how we get the story started. Here comes the exposition are sort of sh- are, are recorded and, and sort of delivered in exactly the same speed and tempo as like a plane crash or, you know, some exciting sci-fi plot thing happening. There's no differentiation between those the, the way that those scenes are put together and that means everything just proceeds at one universal pace and that's completely undermining to the drama here.
0: Yeah, I've just been looking it up and yeah, Ken Bentley, who directs this story, veteran Big Finish director, directs as far as I can tell, most, not all, of the countermeasures stories. So, yeah, I, it's definitely not an experience. Not definitely not with Big Finish. Definitely not working with these actors. And I mean, obviously, these actors have done upwards of a uh, half a dozen more box sets playing these characters. So I don't really know what the problem. Uh, yeah, and the writer John Dorney, he's one of the like the. Script editor for the counting measure box sets. And so all these people are in their comfort zone, and I don't understand why it is the way it is that way. And maybe that is just like the style of these characters is to be very clipped, very weirdly paced like that, because that's just like how they talk, trying to imitate that very brush, stiff upper lip, sixties style, I don't know. But uh, yeah, it's, it's bizarre. And I think that the story still works, but you're definitely right. Uh, it sort of drags down the tension a bit when the it feels a little flat throughout in a way I can't quite put my finger on.
1: I think even if that is the sort of normal default style of countermeasures, um, I still think it's legitimate to criticize this play for just doing that, because... Like I mentioned before this isn't uh, something which is just going to appeal to your hardcore audience it's like your big 20th uh, your big 20th year anniversary story it's gonna go out to a whole bunch of people who aren't people who are gonna have read or sorry listened to you know like a bunch of countermeasures or a bunch of Benny audios or whatever it is you're reaching a much broader audience here and so I think it's kind of beholden to people who are writing or producing these stories to kind of up the game and and sort of have that inclusivity. And like for all the flaws that something like the light at the end had, inclusivity was not one of them. It was very easy to come to that story and have you know, next to no knowledge of what's going on in Big Finish and still be able to listen and enjoy it. Now, sure, you can argue that that's just a standard runaround. It's like the master has a stupid plan. The doctor defeats it. It just takes four of him rather than one of him, blah, blah, blah. That's all perfectly reasonable. And it's also probably perfectly reasonable to argue that, well, this is Big Finish's 20th anniversary. So we're going to use Big Finish's sort of you know, big strong points in order to put that across. Like, I, I think there's, yeah, like nine or ten countermeasures story now, and there's more going to be released next year. So whatever, like, okay, I'm not a big fan of countermeasures. I haven't listened to it, but somebody's buying these. Somebody's, you know, and they're, they're producing enough of these or selling enough of these in volume to justify continuing the range for for many years. So that's great. I I don't want to suggest that there's anything wrong with that. There absolutely isn't. But at the same time, if it's going to be your big anniversary romp, you need to do more than just replicate... What happens in your normal range? You need to do something which is going to allow audience uh, audiences that aren't that familiar with it to get on board, and I think that's the biggest flaw here. Like again, using the Rocket Men ex- is exactly the same thing. If you're not like intimately familiar with the fact that they've been in like half a dozen stories and they're an ongoing recurring alien, like it means nothing. If you didn't, if you'd never heard of the Rocket Men before you listened to the Split Infinitive, all you would think is, "Wow." What a lame bunch of absolutely stereotypical do not... Like, they basically have exactly the same input as the uh, scavengers do in Lies and Ruins, except they've been in the story like they've been in, like, half a dozen or more different stories, and they have exactly the same impact. That's not good enough. You need something more to drive the plot, and just a, ha-ha, I recognize this, isn't really strong enough.
0: Uh, Yeah, I've never listened to Rocket Man's story before, and my impression of them is, oh, they're, like sort of Guy Ritchie characters with jetpacks. That's pretty much it, right? <laughs> yeah, basically. Okay, I mean, that's, yeah, that's not very impressive.
1: <laughs> no, there's nothing remotely interesting about the Rocket Man. And no matter how hard Big Finish to labor to try and convince us otherwise, it is not going to work.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that is part of it is they're just, like, not that compelling villains. Uh, the timeline stuff... We've seen that sort of thing done so many times in Doctor Who, uh, going to the past and then affecting like later on, uh, later times, and then sort of coordinating that. And there's just nothing truly innovative about this story when it's all familiar. And I think that's sort of I mean, that's sort of like the biggest fear with this box set. And I think to its credit, I think the story is still fine and entertaining, but. I think it's definitely missing a spark the other two stories in this box at worth doing something genuinely you haven't seen before in Big Finish, even if it's just pairing up characters together or examine this character at a different period in their life. It's something that feels genuinely fresh and there is nothing fresh in the story at all.
1: No, I think that puts the, the sort of uh, tin hat on it exactly. There is nothing fresh in this story. And, like, yeah, again, we haven't really said anything about sort of Sylvester McCoy or Sophie Aldred, but they're fine. Yeah, They turn up and they, they do the thing that they do, and that's really all you can ask of them. But, I mean, they're not, like, given a great amount of scope to do much like towards the end um th- there's a scene where rather than explain the plot himself he turns to ace and says okay explain what's going on here and then ace is able to explain it um then that's fine and that's like that's nice that continues like the through line of of Ace sort of gradually learning under the doctor or whatever but it's all i mean it's it's true to the characters but it's all very unremarkable i mean we've seen it before i'm 100 percent sure we'll see it again um Sylvester McCoy is great at being able to do that and the way that he's able to kind of deliver that kind of very light, slightly teasing way when he asks Ace to explain things and the way that Ace is kind of filled with pride because she knows how to answer the question and she's getting top marks or whatever. You know, that's like, that's great. That's all fine. But we've had a hundred of these scenes in the past and there's nothing really new that's done with that scene that really, yeah, helps to bring it to life and I'm not going to criticize the performances I'm not going to criticize any of the performances really except for the Rocket Men mm-hmm. and the Rocket Men are, like you said they're just like yeah bog standard all, right, tree, all kind of East End London cliches and there's just nothing interesting about them at all but like everybody else is fine and for all that I might question the way that the the production is, is sort of delivered here I don't think any of the performances really suffer from it you know these actors have been doing this for however many years Big Finish has been doing countermeasures for, like almost 10 years now or something, I think, roughly, something like that, that Big Finish have been doing countermeasures. So, you know, they're all familiar with this and they all know what's going on and the rapport between the the countermeasures uh, regulars, that's all fine. But just like it's all fine doesn't really give you an awful lot to get worked up
0: about. Yeah, I can't think of a better way to sum up the story. So I think that's a good cue to move on to the sacrifice of Joe Grant. And yet, this is a story that I liked a lot more than the previous. It, I just listened to it this morning, and it really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I think there's definitely some fair criticisms of it, but I think uh, Katie Manning is a superstar.
1: I am in no way going to disagree with that story. I, I think this is by far and away the strongest story of the three that we're covering this week. And and Katie Manning is such a hero. I just adore her performance of this. She's She's full of life, she's full of beans, the way she just like, Oh darling, of course, all this kind of stuff. It's it's just fabulous. And it's really I would like I understand that there are some fans who are very prickly about the idea of recasting doctors. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with it. I, I have no problem with uh, Tim Traylor's performance as the third Doctor. I think he does as good a job as you could possibly hope for, given that Sean Pertwee is never going to do it. And, you know, he's he's absolutely fine. I really, I'm completely relaxed about his performance as the third Doctor. It's still a different thing when you're asked to have this kind of thing where it's not joe grant of the the 70s but it's joe grant of now sort of performing against that we know that um joe has uh, or that katie manning rather has done uh, performances with tim Trailer where she's playing like the 70s version of her character i don't think there's any examples of her doing it as uh, her sort of contemporary version of the character so that's a really interesting idea that's a good hook to build this story off. And it works so well. I can only imagine how weird it is for Katie Manning to be acting opposite somebody doing an impression of her dead best friend. But you know, it's like it for whatever reason and however you want to play it, it just works. And and so much of that is down to is down to Katie Manning. She's such a hero here. I love her performance.
0: Yeah, she is fantastic. I mean, she's obviously the superstar of this story. Of this half of the box set of uh, maybe the whole one by the time we get to the end of it. Though I have high hopes about our Colin Baker story coming up. But until then, yeah, Katie Manning is really good. Uh, and Trey Lord, really impressed with the story. I've listened to now three of his performances. We reviewed the first box set and I've listened to half of the second one. And I I remember him i mean impression of him being competent and like a good enough facsimile and bringing enough to the role that it's not just a carbon copy. But here, I think he's really settled into the role by now. Like I think he's, I don't know, five or six box sets deep into playing the third Doctor. And now he is just, like, he really does uh, bring back that Pertwee charm in a very concrete way. He really understands everything that worked about that performance and is able to sort of replicate it, but without feeling like he's just doing the same thing. And he's really putting his own stamp on it now, too. And I think that's just wonderful. I think that is sort of the ideal way you want to recast a Doctor. And it really was able to immerse myself and picture John Pertree being there and saying those lines, but still giving his own distinctive performance.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think what's so great about the way that he performs here is that it, it feels like an interpretation of the third Doctor without just feeling like it's an impression of John Pertwee. And that's a really difficult line to walk. Like, Obviously, he's doing the voice. Obviously, he's doing the mannerisms and the tics. And that's, that's fine, because that's part of the essence of who the third Doctor is. But it doesn't just feel like an impression. Like we get one line here, which is from the Brigadier. And I think that kind of highlights the difference in in approaches because, like, the whole thing with the, the, the one line of the Brigadier, I'm assuming that it's uh, John Colshaw that, that does it. I can't it remember is. if he's even listed in the cast. He is. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, and, like, it's good. He does an amazing Nicholas Courtney. There's no doubt about it. He's brilliant at doing that. But it is just a straight impression. Whereas there's something much more subtle about the way that Tim Traylor does the third Doctor. Like you say, he's a few box sets in now and he's kind of really settled into the role. But there's something, like the best scene in the whole of the three episodes I think that we've listened to is the one in the pub restaurant where it's just the third Doctor and Joe like kicking back, having a pie and, and, and talking about how much they mean to each other. It's genuinely touching. And there's a real kind of emotional charge to it, and so much of it is from the way that uh, Katie Manning just relishes it. Like she's—I don't believe for a second that she's acting in that scene. I think she is just letting her her love of the role and everything that Doctor Who is meant to her, and the whole thing just sort of pours out of her. And it's a completely captivating performance. But but Tim Trailer absolutely matches her. There's some something very heartfelt about the way that he delivers his side of that conversation as well it's an incredibly kind of um moving scene and it's just like it's not that long it's something like two or three minutes and just like the way that joe sort of mentions that oh she can't quite you know, comprehend the idea of the doctor ordering beef when he has respect for all life. That's such a small thing, but it's so sharply observed. It's exactly the kind of thing that Joe would say. I like the idea that she's become vegetarian completely aligns with what happens to her at the end of uh, the Green Death, but it's also character consistent with what we've experienced of Joe since then. It's, it's a, brilliant scene i think yeah guy adams absolutely knocks those few minutes out of the park and even if you didn't listen to anything else in these three episodes those scenes alone are absolutely
0: worth it oh for sure it's such a moving scene and like you said it really does feel like a capstone on sort of the career of katie manning i mean the story doesn't go through with killing her off and i I had to ask did you think it was actually going to or not
1: um, I ha- I thought th- I thought they might play at it, and then like come episode six, they might find a way of retconning it. So I thought they might have gone through with it. I didn't think they would do it forever and ever. It's too- there's too much sweetness in in what's going on here. There's too much love for the character. I think for her to really go out this way but I thought they might let it go that she's like blasted into the vortex and then the credits roll and then sometime around episode 6 then the Doctor will find some amazing way to save her so no I didn't really
0: think they were going to kill her off did you? Uh, No yeah, I I definitely thought (laughs) I thought it would be by the end of the story even and I was right but it I think it is work well for the character dramatic stakes because I think putting Kate Manning in that position gives her the chance to act Uh, Give a beautiful goodbye scene. And so, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want to be too harsh on the sort of concept of Disney death and just hate it as like a trope. You know, this sort of, oh, it's they look dead, but actually come back to life uh, sort of thing, because good things can come from that if used well. And here I think it's used well because you get such a great performance out of everyone involved.
1: Oh, no, everybody gives their absolute best. They're giving 110% here.
0: And I think the reason
1: that this story is able to get away with that kind of trope of, oh, we're going to kill the companion. Ah, no, actually, she's fine. Is because the question I don't think is ever really whether they're going to kill her off. So the question isn't whether she dies. The question is how she's going to get away with it. And that's fine. That's perfectly legitimate to put your characters, you know, in... It's the same with the Doctor. You know, we know he's not going to die when he's put in mortal when the credits roll like like half a dozen times or a dozen times it'll lead to regeneration but for the rest of the time we know he's going to be fine so it's not whether he gets out of it it's how he gets out of it and and like the emotional truth of what happens to joe here is what matters so yeah like you say she gets a killer goodbye scene I like she gets she gets to do venusian karate on uh, uh sorry venusian aikido on on the doctor that's hilarious that's <laughs> fantastic i laughed out loud when she did that that's just so brilliant um and yeah there's there's a real kind of honesty towards the character here so it's it's fine that they didn't kill her off and, and i don't suppose anybody was really expecting that they would um, but it's it, it it works. Yeah, there's there's so much joy around the way that Joe's character is handled. I think Joe is by far and away the most important character here, more than the Third Doctor, more than the the mm. current unit squad, whatever. This is really an episode that's about Joe, and and it's just brilliant for that. I love it for that.
0: I mean, and she is the titular character, and I think it's very much of a hat tip to have the focus because. Tim Trillard has been the Big Finish for a few years now, but Katie Manning has been such an important part of the company. And this isn't a Doctor Who celebration as much as it's a Big Finish celebration. And she's also Iris Wildtime, who I'm a little bummed is not showing up somewhere in this box set. And she's also, she's played Joe so many times through Companion Chronicles and now through Doctor Adventures. She's like just as important up there with like Louise Jameson and Lisa Bowerman as far as one of the cornerstone returning actors to this uh, company uh coming again and again and being recast again and again and I think this is so much more of a service to Katie Manning featuring the doctor and new unit than it is anything else
1: no I think that's completely correct and I'm also completely comfortable with that because I can just listen to her indefinitely you know she's just great and as long as she's still around and as long as she's still willing, to record these stories, then, you know, all power to her. I'm I'm never going to get tired of listening to her. And like, even when she gets to play like an alien spider in the River Song series, fantastic. I'm completely down with that. You know, just, yeah. Keep going, Kate. We love you very dearly. Um, But I think if there is a flaw here, I think probably the, the sort of preeminence of, of Joe does slightly squash out the other unit characters. Now, I've got to be honest, I'm fine with that. Mm. That's a that's a perfectly valid choice to make, and I think that you know, if this episode wants to focus on Joe, great. It 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 it, it feels like a tribute to, to Katie Manning and all the work she's done, that's completely appropriate, and um the, the the sort of contemporary unit cast sort of fade into the background a bit. Um yeah, I'm I'm fine with that. How how did you find the normal unit cast here?
0: Uh I hate to invoke ria again because i don't think the scenes were that bad but i every time we cut back to osgood it's like oh yes she's doing something there's a dinosaur now now there's zombies it's whatever i mean they're very much filler scenes but they're distracting from the doctor and joe having this nice conversation in a pub and that's what i really want
1: <laughs> oh no i think that's completely fair i i, I don't think that they uh, really contribute a lot here i mean i don't think they're really supposed to either um I feel a little bit sorry for them in a way mm. because they are conspicuously sidelined. But honestly, I, I'm really sorry. I, I, I know um, she has plenty of fans, but I don't think Ingrid Oliver is particularly well suited to radio or to audio because her voice is very... I find her very indistinct listening to this. She didn't stand out. Like for If you want to criticise... Um, it's definitely a criticism that gets leveled at a lot of big finish but if you want to criticize big finish for encouraging people to go for kind of like big performances outsized performances I think that's a valid criticism but I think when it comes to doing audio I think that's one of the things you kind of have to do you need to have sort of voices which are sort of distinctive and I think Gemma Redgrave has that in, in in sort of Kate Stewart she has a quite unusual delivery and she doesn't quite hit lines exactly as you expect them to and I think that I mean that definitely think that's true of her television performance as well and that's not a criticism of her but it's one of the things that makes her performance distinctive whereas I, I think the way that Ingrid Oliver delivers her lines makes her sound like an extra and I'm sorry that sounds really harsh I don't really mean it to be as sort of mean as that sort of sounds, but she kind of fades into the background. So whenever uh, whenever Osgood was sort of asked to deliver you kind know, of like exposition or here's a dinosaur, here's a zombie, here's a, a time wave or whatever it is, like it could have been anybody saying that. She just doesn't quite come across distinctive enough to make an impression here. And that adds or kind of doubles down on the fact that the, the sort of contemporary unit cast feel very kind of second string
0: here. I had the exact same note about Ingrid Oliver, and I do feel bad, but I think this is the second story that we... uh, Because, yeah, the 8th of March one as well, and both times I've heard her do audio. It's uh, just been... She's been fine. (laughs) And it's very... It's almost sort of frustrating because I feel like every other returning actor has had a chance to really make a name for themselves. No matter how maligned their TV performance has been, uh, they've really sort of double down, put it in the work and give really great performance with Big Finish. I am struggling to name an actor just Rolodexing through every previous doctor and companion and whoever who didn't really like stand out and put the Big Finish. And I, now I can think of a couple and I'm not going to malign them here because it's not really related to what we're talking about. But still, it's very rare to have a character jump from TV to radio and then not really put in the work and feel like they're doing something distinctive and new with the performance and just improving on the deck